Well, you, uh, what, a, what a delightful congregation, what a delightful evening, what a way to start. Uh, Oliver Jones, the associate pastor here, uh, you guys brought me on board to be a jack of all trades. And such I am. <laughs> but I, I, I would acknowledge that one of those traits, one of the things that the Lord has brought me into is a stream of biblical counseling. It's a very key uh, component of my wife and I's marriage. It was uh, the piece at which a lot of the things that were missing in our marriage were tied together um, because of the, the foundation, pardon me, the foundation of biblical counseling is, is set, is girded with scripture, with truth. And it says, this is what the scripture says. So brothers and sisters, let's do this. Let's do this together. Um, so our, our marriage turned when we went to a biblical counseling seminar, a session together. It wasn't, it wasn't even a session. It wasn't a seminar. It was a class. It was 17 weeks. It involved paper writing. It involved reading. It involved laboring through lists of scripture to understand the theme that was there. Oh, look at that. The majesty of God. The majesty of God. The majesty of God. The deity of Christ. The person of the Holy Spirit. And then you ask yourself the question, Romans 8:28 that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Does it really say that? Do you really believe that? Is that really true? Is that more certain than the deposit that you made on Friday into your bank account? Is that more certain in your mind? Romans 8:28 is it more certain in your mind than where you parked your car? Well, it is in my mind. I'm more certain in my mind than where I parked my car or the deposit I made on Friday is that the word of God and God's plan for our life, he works all things together for the good of those who love him. Well, biblical counseling and introduction, I wanted to give you, I start out with a scenario. So if you would, we're just going to run through a little scenario as an introduction. And so suppose with me that a young man who's troubled comes into the church and he wants to come in and see a counselor. He wants to see a pastor for counseling. Would you want us to take him in? Would that be your heart's desire? Do you believe that we have anything of value to offer a young man who's troubled? Okay, now suppose that this man, this young man, has had suicidal thoughts for the last two, three, four months. Do we still have the ability to help him? Is the scenario beyond our scope, our reach, our range to impact this life? Would you believe that we are equipped to speak about life? Death, mental illness, anxiety, depression, suicide. Okay, well, if you continue to say yes, suppose then, suppose that after receiving our counsel, the man commits suicide. Who's to blame? Did the Bible fail him? Did the counselor fail him? Who's at fault? Well, I'll give this scenario to you because this is a real scenario. And in 1980, at Grace Community Church, Pastor John MacArthur and his congregation were taken through a lawsuit that claimed clergy malpractice. The lawsuit charged that the pastors on the staff were negligent because they tried to help a suicidal young member of the church by giving him biblical truth. You can imagine how this played out in the media, all the hype and the pomp and the circumstances to deny the sufficiency of the scriptures or these crazy Christians in their churches. What are they trying to do? The counsel that was given was good counsel. It was biblical counsel. It was away from suicide. It was toward the Savior for reconciliation between God and man. The young man ultimately rejected the counsel. 
But at stake in the whole incident was this. Should churches have the legal right to counsel troubled people using only the Bible? That was at stake. The argument went like this. Giving a depressed and suicidal person advice from the scriptures is simplistic and irresponsible approach to counseling. Experts were called and introduced this notion. They said spiritual counseling was not appropriate for people with real problems. These cases must be referred out to professionals, mental health experts with adequate resources. Pastors should be required to refer these cases out to the professionals. Counseling from the Bible, then, they said, is reckless and negligent, and church leaders should be held morally and legally culpable for their actions. You can gather from the claims and notions the hostility toward the Bible that existed in this case and toward those people who would declare that it alone is sufficient for counseling. The case itself, the young man was already being counseled by a psychiatrist. He was pursuing psychiatric treatments as well. Grace Church pastors had asked him to make sure that he saw a medical doctor because the aim then is to rule out any organic or chemical cause of his depression. The conclusion of the matter. No less than three courts in the state of California heard this trial. All three rulings were in favor of the church. Two rulings were overturned on appeal on technicalities, but it ultimately ended up going and being appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court refused to hear the trial, and so the California State Supreme Court ruling was set to stand. The church was absolved of any wrongdoing or any blame. And each judge's opinion indicated that the church had not failed to give proper care to this young man. The court upheld the right of all churches to counsel biblically. You know, it's a particular note of this case. I mentioned the experts a few times. Let's talk about them. The experts that came to the trial who testified against the church and against the sufficiency of the scripture were no less than those who practice professional Christian counseling. There's a distinction. I hope you see that. There's biblical counseling, which happens in those two offices, and there's Christian counseling, which happens down the street for 150 bucks an hour. These were professional Christian counselors, the experts who were called in, men who identified themselves as evangelicals testified before the secular authorities that the Bible alone does not contain the sufficiency and it's not sufficient to help to meet people's deepest personal and emotional needs. Well, let's take a look at a definition of biblical counseling. Even simpler, let's just take a look at a definition of counseling. Heath Lambert, the executive director of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, he says this of counseling. Counseling is a conversation where one party with questions, problems, and troubles seeks assistance from someone they believe has answers, solution, and help. Very simple. I've got problems. You got help. At least I believe that you have help. Very simple. But Lambert goes on in his book, A Theology of Biblical Counseling, to say this. <clears throat> this is the truth of counseling. Counseling is a theological discipline. I don't know if you think about it, but those terms are hurtful to secular psychologists and psychotherapists and psychiatrists and even Christian counselors. The counseling is in itself a theological discipline. In saying this, Lambert is creating a necessary barrier between the world system 
and a biblical system. He is saying that true help, genuine help, ultimately, just like the song that was saying, must focus on God and his righteousness. Failure here is to miss the whole purpose of your trial, of your circumstance, of your life. Who gave you your trial, your circumstance, your challenge? What's he trying to do with it? God gave those to you. See, counseling, Heath Lambert says, is not mere commiseration. It's, it's more than just hanging out. In order for counseling to occur, one participant in the conversation must move toward the struggling person with actual answers, solution, and help. For answers, solution, and help to be helpful answers, they must match the righteous standard of God. Failure will bring more complication, more pain, more hurt. And finally, as we ultimately know, if you don't ultimately get pointed to the Savior, Jesus Christ, your destination is hell. And that's worse than any depression or anxiety that you can feel temporarily on earth. Counseling in its simplest form require, requires a couple of things. We'll first look at what counseling does not require. What counseling does not require, simple form. Counseling does not require the trappings of professionalism. What do I mean by this? The trappings of professionalism. Counseling doesn't require a formal office. doesn't require credentials. Counseling doesn't require licenses. I told you this morning in our service that you probably counseled yourself on the way into church this morning. You might have decided that under those blue skies that maybe the ocean was calling your name and you needed to spend time there. But you counseled your heart away from such an activity and decided to come fellowship with the saints instead. Counseling doesn't require the trappings of professionalism. Second, counseling does not require the right answer. That might be hard for some people to take, but counseling doesn't require the right answer. Because I know many of you, myself included, have given bad advice, bad counsel. And we often go to people and we get bad counsel. It's circulating all over the place. Bad counsel is very easy to find. How many today have the professionalism and a host of wrong answers? Many are offering dreadful counsel today, and yet they're still called counselors. No requirement is set on counseling to be good. What does counseling require? Well, what you must do for counseling is this. This is Heath Lambert quoting from him. He says, you must articulate some vision of reality that understands the dilemma of the counselee and offers a response to the dilemma. Catch that? You must, have, you must articulate some vision of reality that understands the dilemma and offers an appropriate response. That's counseling. What we're talking about when we talk about a vision of reality, we're talking about a worldview. We're talking about a worldview. Counselors, counselees coming in and they have a worldview that doesn't conform to reality. A better way to say that might be that they have bad theology. Bad theology. Bad thoughts about God. Wrong understandings. And they need a new life perspective. They need to know how life works. They need to know what it is. They need to know why life is often broken. They, they need to have established for them normative standards. I think about normative standards. I think about this path right here. Normative standards down the aisle. Just what's, what's the straight and narrow? Normative standards. From which, if you, if you establish normative standards, you can then uh, understand departures and how departures are made from the standard. If you understand normative standards, you can give an explanation to the problem when, when departures are made. If you, understand, if you have an understanding of the normative standards, you, you can afford reasoning for hope in a solution. 
You can, you can give someone hope who's over here lost back on to the standard. And in doing so, you can then assert a direction to make the move from error, from problem, back onto the path. This worldview is most uh, articulated, probably most clearly, by Solomon. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14, Solomon said this. This is the conclusion of the matter. When all has been heard is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. I think in that, Solomon gave us a pretty good understanding of what a worldview is. He cleared it up. This is the guy that in Ecclesiastes 1.14 said, I've seen everything. Everything under the sun, I've seen it, I've done it. It's all vanity, striving after the wind, except for this, fear God and keep his commandments. All the writers of scriptures then affirm that same idea. They have that same vision of life, that same vision of reality, and it goes like this. God is king. God has spoken. Man is wicked and sinful. Jesus came to pay for the sins of man. The spirit of God in the man who, is in the man who confesses that Jesus is Lord. It goes further to say that God wants to reconcile. Jesus is our peace. The Holy Spirit has given new life. And the redeemed, the redeemed are the ones who choose to obey. They're the ones who obey. If I were to give you a sample vision, one thing that I run through with my counselees, it's just my own help to create a worldview, and you can take on your, pen, on your paper and you can put a dot, and you can put next to that dot G-O-G. And if I would ask you the question, what's the purpose of your life? You would be able to fill in the G-O-G. What's the purpose of your life? Glory of God. That's the purpose of your life. I expect that from a Christian. So from that dot, I, I, I'm trying to draw a heart, and God's at the center of that heart. He's right at the top where the two points come together on the heart. And I put God right there, and I say, if God, if the glory of God is the aim, then the next thing I need to understand about this worldview, trying to draw this heart, understand the heart of God in understanding my life, say God's at the center, and he gets all the glory. If he gets all the glory, then the next point on the outside of the circle, on my left, would be the expectations of behavior that God gets to have because he made me. God made me. I'm made in his image, and he gets to have expectations. It's right. It's just. It's even necessary that God has expectations of my behavior. So now i got these two things going on in my worldview, the glory of God and the expectations that God has of behavior. And then we come to this place right now, right here today, right now, this moment, and you have a decision to make. Now you have a decision to make. And the decision is, do you honor God or do you honor self? It's that easy. That's simple. You're either going to honor self and choose, a, choose your own self, your selfish means, or you've said in your mind, you've focused, you've purposed that God is going to be the one that's going to get all the glory. That's simple, cut and dry. Well, there's also a means that God has prepared in the wake of disaster. Should you choose disobedience, we go through the process of peace and we can hook back around and get to God. But if you get down to the bottom, the point of decision, the bottom of the heart, right? The bottom of the heart. If you get to the bottom of the heart and you make a decision that honors God, where does that go right back up to? The center of that heart. It's the glory of God. And you can just make this circle all day long. This half of this heart, you can make it all day long. But God knew we were sinful, so he gave us the other half of the heart. And the other half of the heart says, Jesus Christ came to pay for your sins. And through him, there's a process of reconciliation and peace. And men, we went through that last week, right? 
the process of peace. You fail God and you don't bring him glory. How can you hook around the other side of that heart and make it complete? Confess. Repent. Forgive. Restore. Obey. You do that, you're obeying God, and that heart will hook around. So it's either going to be glory to God directly, right at the bottom of the heart, right back up to the top, or you need to hook around through Christ. And what do all humanity need to have a full heart, to have a pure heart before God? You need to obey God, and if you fail, right? Because John says in 1 John chapter 2, he says, I don't want you to sin, but if you sin, you have an advocate in Jesus Christ the righteous. He's a propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but those of the whole world. So that's how you have that heart. That's a simple little worldview that I create for my counselees. You can create your own. You can use that one. Rip them off. They're all great, as long as they focus and point to God getting all the glory. The question really comes down to this. Do you believe Paul when he says in Colossians 2, 3, that Christ is in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Do you believe that about Jesus Christ? He is the one in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Because this is true, there can only be one answer as far as worldview world is related. The only helpful view must be a God-focused view, a theocentric view. God must be at the center of all things. So I would ask any Christian counselor, or yourself for that matter, in adopting a vision of reality, does God believe that your worldview is faithful to him? Does God believe that your worldview is faithful to him? So that's kind of an idea or a definition of, of biblical counseling and looking at worldview. It's kind of a dominant theme, worldview. What is the worldview? It goes back to the song, right? Just that song, in God alone. That's what biblical counselors want to drive to their counselees. In God alone, you will find all the answers to all the problems of life in God alone. What biblical counseling is not is what we want to look at next. I think that's on your notes there. So I've got seven points here what biblical counseling is not. First, biblical counseling, then, is not an autonomous ministry. It's not something only done by the counseling department, heaven forbid, and left alone to those who are certified. I've taken pains to go through and make sure that I'm certified. That's, that's the level of effort and intentionality that I want to bring to the counseling that I perform. You don't need to do that. But I would encourage you to. I would love to set up more training. We can drive up to a Tascadero and go, go have training. I can set up training classes here. We need to be trained. But it's not a requirement for biblical counseling to happen that you be certified. As if the word of God can't be ministered effectively by you right now. If the young man with troubles came walking in here right now, any one of you that claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior have more than he's got. And you've got something to offer him. Second, Biblical counseling is not an activity reserved for experts, as previously mentioned. To do so would be to give counseling a Gnostic flavor. It would be to suggest that an elite group has received special knowledge, and they alone are the administrators and the disseminators of that special knowledge. And this idea would be totally unbiblical. What biblical counseling is not, then number three, it's not an optional ministry. We're going to get to these passages later. You can write them down if you'd like. Acts 20, 31. Romans 15, 14, and Colossians 1, 28. There's a theme with all of those three. I'll read them again. Acts 20, 31, Romans 15, 14, and Colossians 1, 28. The command by the Apostle Paul has been put out regarding how believers are to treat one another, teaching each other 
is a command. It becomes the very fabric of the New Testament church. But biblical counseling is not point four. Biblical counseling is not separate from discipleship. It's not separate from discipleship. There is inherently an understanding of a life-on-life component in biblical counseling. It's not sterile. Okay? It doesn't feel like a psychiatrist's office. It doesn't feel like a doctor's office or a dentist's office. This is not a padded room. It's not the principal's office. You don't go to your biblical counselor like your priest. Rather, you are brothers and sisters in Christ with the people you counsel, everyone trying to seek the glory of God in their daily lives. And that means contact outside of the office is good, and it's expected. It means discipleship happens in word and in deed, and it happens everywhere. Okay, you, can go to, you can take someone to Starbucks every Monday morning, not at 7.30 because you've got to be here for prayer time, but any time after that. No, you don't have to go there. You, go, you can go to the coffee bean or red bee. You can go there, and, and you can spend time counseling them just by asking questions and talking with them about life. It's just life-on-life contact. It's sharing more of that worldview that understands in God alone, right? That you really understand that, that you know that that's set well on your heart and that you know it from the scriptures, that this wasn't given to you by flesh and blood, but this is something that came to you by revelation of God through his spirit. Fifth, what biblical counseling is not. It's not insensitive and uncaring. It's not. It's actually genuine care. Genuine care is offered to the counselee in biblical counseling as if to a family member. There's great sensitivity that is shown for the person and their circumstances. The counselor has, has no desire to merely sling scripture around and dismiss the counselee. Rather, the counselor wishes to hear, listen, ask questions, and understand so that they might rightly take their knowledge of Scripture and apply it rightly, gently, and timely to a life in distress. Many a times, many a times, you hear stories of people in a counseling room and you can't help but weep with them, weep right alongside of them because you can feel the struggle, you can feel the challenge, and you know life hurts, but you know also the certainty of the scriptures and the certainty with which God wants to get his glory if they would conform their life to the person of Christ and experience all the joy that the Apostle Paul experienced regardless of his circumstances. That's what we want from counseling. It is not insensitive and uncaring. What else is biblical counseling not? It's not a canned methodology. What do I mean by that? We don't offer plug-and-play programs in biblical counseling. Rather, each case is handled independently. Solutions are customized. Conversations are individualized for the expressed purpose of communicating the truth of Scripture to a single individual. Right now, this is communication one to many. This morning, it's communication one to many. What the Biblical Counseling Office does and what you do in your own lives when you leave this building and go talk with one another is you take the ministry of God and you make it person to person. And that's exactly what Paul did. Acts 20.20, we'll get to that passage, talks just about that. But we don't offer a canned methodology. It's a highly customized and specialized. It doesn't afford prepackaged, get-in-line, ready-to-eat-and-be-healed solutions. That's not what we're after. Giving biblical principles is, to apply is not what biblical counseling is about either. We're not about giving biblical principles to apply. You know what I mean by that? Giving biblical principles to apply. Be stewards of your money. Take that and go apply that to your life. What's more important, that you be stewards of your money or that you follow Jesus Christ? If you follow Jesus Christ, what, what can I know that you're going to do with your money? So who do I want to give you first? 
This is teach a man to fish, right? And he'll feed himself for a lifetime. It's not just take and apply this biblical truth. Be humble. Does that make sense? I don't, I don't just want you to be humble for humility's sake. You'll, you'll end up going from this sin and turning to this sin. And you'll exalt yourself in your humility. All the meanwhile missing, you were supposed to turn to Jesus Christ alone and follow him. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ and get on his plan. Don't just turn to humility. Don't just turn to being a steward of your resources. You've got to turn and focus on the Savior. That's what, that's what biblical counseling wants to get people to do. So that's what biblical counseling is not, right? We're not about giving principles to apply. Slap this onto your life. Slap that on. I want to give you a relationship with a person. What biblical counseling is then is what we'll turn to next. What biblical counseling is. Biblical counseling is the discerning of desires, thinking, and behavior that God wants to change. The discerning of desires, thinking, and behavior that God wants to change. So a counselor has to discern. Discern. How do you get to the point in life where you can discern? Well, you've seen multiple ages of life, phases of life, but it also means that you've read your scriptures and you understand what the Bible talks about in life so that you can look at someone else's life and discern, help them discern, what does God think about your life? What does God think about your desires and your thinking and behavior? How does he want you to change? So that's what biblical counseling is. It's discerning. Desires, thinking, and behavior. Next, biblical counseling is changing Changing desires, thinking, and behavior. Now, do I as a counselor change desires, thinking, and behavior? Well, I could be used as God, by God as an agent, but ultimately God wants to use his word to change desires, thinking, and behavior. Let alone the idea that this, usually in biblical counseling, you know, if, if someone walks in and they want counseling, I can, I can walk through and talk with them about biblical principles, but unless they're saved... We're talking about evangelism first and foremost. That's the first thing. I, I, you know, outside of someone who's saved, I'm just evangelistic in the counseling office. And you have run into that many times. And I can give biblical principles and help them in their life and get them to conform their life in this area or that area. But ultimately, it has to be evangelism, right? Go back to the beginning. It has to be about Christ. So I want them to change, but I know that the only way they're going to change their thoughts desires and behavior is if we point them to the scriptures and know that the Holy Spirit is inside their heart using the scriptures to conform their heart to the likeness of Christ. So biblical counseling is discerning, biblical counseling is changing, and biblical counseling is sanctifying. It's the sanctifying of a Christian with the effort, the aim, the purpose of yielding. Go back to the center of the heart. Where are we going? Yielding what? What are we supposed to yield? The G-O-G. What is that? The glory of God. That's what we want from a life. That they would be sanctified for the explicit purpose of yielding glory to God. Well, I want to run, run you through a history to help understand why did it come to the idea that we need to be talking about biblical counseling tonight? Is this what was being talked about, oh, in the 13th century or the 14th century or the 16th century? Was, was biblical counseling on everyone's radar? Or is that more woven into the fabric of the church? Pastor John MacArthur says that ever since apostolic times, counseling has occurred in the church as a natural function of corporate spiritual life. The instructions of, of Paul and the New Testament authors, Pastor John says, apply to the rank and file church members, not to some priestly cast of experts. So we can cast our mind all the way back to 2,000 years ago. Christ's death 
the church, inauguration, Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And we can say from that point in time, moving forward, the church has been counseling one another biblically. We get to the Puritans, and we see that they, too, fully understood biblical counseling. Out of the Reformation, the Reformers understood counseling. The Puritans understood counseling. It was a regular practice for them, the church and the pastors. They spoke of problems and how to handle problems biblically. Men like Richard Baxter, John Bunyan, Jonathan Edwards. But then you get to the 19th century in America, and all of a sudden you run into the need to identify biblical counseling. You know, America was beaten up for years with with pragmatism after the Second Great Awakening. And you see the churches start to splinter and fragment and open up all kinds of different denominations. You see that the Enlightenment had sown seeds of rationalism and romanticism that started working their way into the secular, the fabric of the secular society. But then the church wanted to grab hold of some of those things too. The church wanted to stay relevant. And so they started making it their aim to kind of tie themselves off. You can see socially, ethically, religiously, there was tension in our country over slavery, the Civil War of the mid-19th century, World War uh, I and the early 20th century. There's a lot of problems that society had created for itself, and it turned to the sciences to make sense of these things. So then in 1925, you get uh, John T. Scopes in the Scopes Monkey Trial. John T. Scopes was a, a science high school teacher. Uh, and so he's in, he's in his high school and he's teaching science and he starts teaching on evolution. He was prosecuted for this in 1925 for teaching evolution. You know, and as much as I said that the 1980 trial went the way for the church, would that trial of 1980 with Grace Community Church, would that trial be won today? The 1925 John T. Scopes trial, evolution, on trial, he lost the case. He was actually convicted but he got a slap on the wrist. And evolution was pretty much declared from 1925 moving forward. Christianity didn't have an answer. Williams Jennings Bryan was put on trial. He was the prosecutor, and then he was put on trial to defend the Bible. To defend the Bible. The the defense attorney asked for a biblical expert, and the prosecutor steps up and says, I'll be the expert. And he says, what what does the Bible have to say about about science? Jennings Bryan couldn't answer. Well, the, the experts, the experts know that. He had his Bible there. I'm a Bible expert. Jennings Bryan, bless his soul, the man died two days after the trial. Just incredible. John T. Scopes, monkey trial. Evolution's brought in. Well, so the society gains this understanding of its origins, right, from the John T. Scopes monkey trial, but that had been propagated by Darwin for years. And so all of a sudden, society's moving down this road, and now we have an understanding of our origin that kind of makes sense. We kind of like that. It helps to eliminate God and give us the freedom to do what we want. But now we need to understand man and understand man's mind. And Freud and, and Carl Rogers and many other psychotherapists and psychologists started to come up with explanations and understandings to go with this evolutionary theory of man. And so you just walk down the road and you see the secular society pick up secular humanism to get all their understandings from rationalism. They completely dismiss the supernatural and everything about the Bible, just take that and shove it to the side. And the authority of the word of God just gets dismissed and blown apart. That's where we start to realize and get the idea that the church would would want to tie itself off to these secular things. Some churches, not all churches. But they would do this in order to get respectability in the society, in the secular culture. In doing so, they give credibility to anti-God therapies. It's been going on for 
far too long. Well, from this, we get Christian psychology. Its techniques and wisdom are gleaned from secular therapies, dispensed by paid professionals, and come sounding vaguely biblical by quoting scripture while blending them with Freudian thought and Carl Rogers' ideas. Counseling then comes from a state-licensed therapist, and it comes at a price. How awkward is this? Did you ever used to go to you know, our, our first-generation uh, Americans? Did they go to a secular psychologist to get to the answers of life? Where did they go to get the answers for life? Went to the church. And now you've got to go pay 150 bucks for someone to get you an answer about life. Shouldn't be the case. It's one of the reasons why I love biblical counseling being free. It's free. You know why? Because I believe that if I'm going to help you, that first I'm going to evangelize you. And next, if the evangelism doesn't work, uh, then you're going to end up running and, and fling. But if, it, if the evangelism that I do works, then you have the Holy Spirit of the living God inside of you. Now we're talking about a power agent that can get something done in your life, that can lead you in all wisdom and truth. And now we can start turning, turning away from sin and turning toward Christ. And I love to offer that for free. It should be free. It's right that it's free. It's just that it's free. Keith Lambert said this. He said, The 20th century witnessed the ascendancy of a theological vision of reality characterized by a disavowal of the authority of God in counseling. This approach to counseling was marked by a nearly complete rejection of the Godward nature of counseling practice. This was a distinct change, he says, from the preceding centuries, which had been characterized by religious dominance regarding counseling. And thus we have J. Adams, J. Adams, born in 1929. He's saved in high school. He serves as a youth director, or he serves as a director of Youth for Christ. He goes on to pursue four degrees, including a PhD, and with all of his wisdom and 13 years in a Presbyterian congregation after having been ordained in 1952, all of his wisdom, all of his knowledge, all of his learning, he gets to a point where he's got a problem. He couldn't help people with problems as a pastor. People with troubled lives needed to be referred outside the church to the professionals. This is what secular society is telling him. The church had bought this lie. This bothered him. It bothered Adam. So he conducted, ultimately, after having looked into psychology, looked into psychotherapy, going to classes from a psychotherapist, he kind of needed to jump into his own Bible study. He did a study on the conscience, guilt, anthropology, and change. And that contradicted what he saw from the theory-driven speculations and their ineffective practice of psychiatrists and their model, which was totally biblically contrary to the Bible. He then took off into counseling, and for two years he counseled people, and he looked at them and he studied the people that he was counseling. He studied the practice of counseling, and then he studied how God's word could be taken and given to people and be used or thought that it could change lives. Radical thinking, huh? In 1967, the Lord crystallized Adam's thoughts regarding biblical counseling. And in 1970, he puts out his first book, Competent to Counsel. Highly recommended, Competent to Counsel. It says that the Bible does speak. It does. The Bible does speak to all of life. That God's understanding of man, truth, and sin is the only understanding. And that God's plan to reconcile is perfect, and it needs to be communicated. He wanted to get the message out to pastors, and so in 1968, he created the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, CCEF. It's currently in Westminster Theological Seminary. 
after you train people, then you need to have a professional association to get those folks attached, connected, and represented in the case of a lawsuit. 1976, he created the National Association of Neuthetic Counselors. After that, there was a journal that was created, and his efforts then opened the floodgates for biblical counseling, not only from the interest level, but to the actual training of individuals, the training of pastors, to counselees with powerful testimonies, to resources and materials. This awesome thing started to happen. In Lafayette, Indiana, Faith Baptist Church, they grabbed hold of this vision. They made biblical counseling their passion. They created Faith Baptist Counseling Ministries in 1977, became an important training center, and ultimately became the home of NAIC, the National Association of Neuthetic Counselors. <coughs> Excuse me. In uh, 2013, the organization changed its name. It's now the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. This vision wasn't left to them alone. John MacArthur picked this up, brought it to the seminary and the university and Grace Community Church, and those efforts have been actively underway there from that time. Go back to this NANC, National Association of Neuthetic Counselors. Do you understand the word neuthetic? What's that mean? What is neuthetic? Why, why put that in the name? Well, the name means so much, that's where we get the biblical warrant. That's what's in your notes, the biblical warrant. Neuthetic. Neutheteo. This word is a Greek word. It means to warn, to admonish, or to instruct. It has eight occurrences in the New Testament. I just want to go through a few of them with you. But this word, you need to understand this word, nutheteo, nutheteo. It's the combination of two words, a noun and a verb. The noun, nous, in Greek means mind. And the word tithemi means to put into or to place into. So we have to place into mind, to place into the mind. That's the idea of nuthetic counseling, nutheteo, to place into mind. Jay Adams went on to identify three basic elements to help understand nuthetic counseling, nutheteoing someone. What is it to be nuthetic with someone? <coughs> First, nutheteo is always paired with, or often paired with, in the scriptures, didasco. Didasco means to teach. Nuthetic means to to warn or to admonish. They're not the same things. Teaching is didasco. It's just straight teaching, the communication of information. Nuthetic, nutheteo, it has this understanding that comes with it of a conflict or a problem that's inherent. And there's someone who's going to bring the instruction and there's someone who's going to receive the instruction. And that this instruction is geared or meant or, or focused on the positive movement away from a negative toward a positive. All that's built into nutheteo. It understands that there are obstacles or problems in people's lives and instruction needs to happen. That's, that's point one, that people's lives have obstacles. There are problems that get created, and that's built into the word nutheteo. Next, nutheteo also understands verbal confrontation, verbal confrontation. And you see this in 1 Samuel 3.13. 1 Samuel 3.13, God is speaking. He's speaking to uh, Samuel, and he's telling Samuel, What's going to happen to Eli? You remember the story. He had to confront, or he had to wake up uh, Samuel three times. On the third time, 
when Samuel was woken up, he spoke to the Lord and at, at the recommendation of Eli. And God told him that because of Eli's failure, destruction was coming. He had already told him that Hophni and Phinehas would be killed. You remember these are the two young boys that were at the gate and they were just really profaning the ministry of the priesthood. And God had had enough. And so he says, he says there in uh, 1 Samuel 3.13, he says, you failed. He's talking, he didn't say you. He's talking about Eli to Samuel and he says, because Eli failed to nutheteo his boys, to admonish them. To instruct them. That's the Greek word from the, from the Septuagint. But that, that word is what the Septuagint translators grabbed hold of to understand the failing of Eli with regard to Hophni and Phinehas. It's a verbal confrontation. There's, there's the sense of a verbal confrontation that there's, a, there's going to be uh, communication directed from one to another in an admonishment fashion. Point three that Adams came up with. So we've got obstacles in life, verbal confrontation, and then Nuthetic has this profound restorative purpose, motivation and desire. Restorative. In love, in love this restoration happens. See, with, with the word Nuthateo, there's no understanding built into the word of punishment. There's no understanding of punishment. The obstacle that's created and the instruction, the placing into the mind that's going to happen, none of this is done in punish, to punish. It's done in love. It's done out of a corrective heart. It's done out of a heart of love. So in summary, people have obstacles in life. Admonishment must be brought to them personally and verbally. And the desires of the confronter must be love and good for the counselee. And we see this in our parenting, right? We see this in church, in the church, in church discipline. We see this in the call to the world to repent. Do, do we call to the world to repent out of hatred? No, the call to, to repent to the world goes out in, in love. So... There's an understanding that you must have discernment about life from a biblical perspective to be able to identify the words and deeds of someone and to conform, to help them to conform their life to the righteous standard of God. You need to be able to biblically back up your findings. You know, it really helps when you pull a chapter and verse and say, I think this is where the problem's at. You must be able to communicate it in the fullness then of humility, of humility. So then a few verses. Um, are you able to instruct is what we see in Romans 15, 14. If you, if you have your Bible, turn to your Bible. I want you to see these verses. Romans 15, 14. So we're, again, we're looking at this word, nutheteo, and we're trying to understand in context what's Paul wanting the readers of the New Testament in Rome and Colossae, in Corinth, in Corinth what, do we, what does he want them to understand when he says didasco and nutheteo people? Didasco, teach people. Nuthateo, admonish them. What, what's the difference and how should we understand this or resolve this? He says in Romans 15, 14, But I myself am fully convinced about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Well, here our word nuthateo is translated as instruct. Again, putting into mind, admonishing, warning. They're able to instruct and counsel one another. That's the expectation that Paul has of these Romans who he hasn't even seen yet. This is a church he's writing to he hasn't seen. He expects that they have the ability to do this, and it should be part of the everyday dynamic of the church. It's not an auxiliary ministry. It's not an appendage to the ministry. It's part of the, the fabric of the ministry. It's critical for the church. 
That's what you see in, in Romans 15, 14. Another great passage to take a look at, and I want you to turn your Bibles here next. You saw nutheteo, which is the word instruct in that passage. Now turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5. We're going to take a look at 1 Thessalonians 5 and look at verses 12, and 12 to 14. I'm going to read this section right now. Here Paul is talking about laborers who need to admonish. And our word's going to come up twice in this passage. And I just want you to think about the context in which this is finding itself. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 14. He says, Paul says this. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who labor among you and preside over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them most highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the undisciplined, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient to all. You know, this last verse, 14, is really the biblical counselor's charge. When, when you, what you see going on there, look what it says. It says, admonish the undisciplined. That's our word, by the way, nutheteo. Admonish, nutheteo, the undisciplined. Speak truth into their mind. Put into, change the mind. Comfort the discouraged. That's what we do in counseling. Help the weak. That's what we do. Be patient toward all. That's what we do. Well, what's the expectation of the church at large? Right? This isn't just for the counseling office, right? This is not just for the, for the pastor's office. This is for all of us. This is an office for all of us. Because look at what verse 14 says. And we urge you, brothers and sisters. That's y'all, right? That's y'all. Go back before that. Who's admonishing you? Who's the one to admonish you? Verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who labor among you and preside over you in the Lord and admonish you. This is interesting. The thought here then would be that someone is paying attention to your life. That someone cares enough about your life to notice that your smile has turned to a frown. That your joy has turned to mourning and sadness. Isn't this like Cain in the Garden of Eden? Didn't God have to come to him and say, why do you have that look on your face? If, if you did what's well, it would go well with you. And you wouldn't have that look on your face. That's what your pastors are doing for you. That's what your elders are doing. They should be doing that. Shame on us if we're not. The call is here. Admonish your people. That's our job too as pastors, as elders. So how many people in the church are supposed to be nuthateoing one another? Admonishing one another? How many? The whole of us, right? Amen, right? We all need to admonish one another to put into mind those principles and ideas that are God-focused and God-centered. The church elders first must do the admonishing. They must be willing and able to confront sin for your good. And you're to love them for this. To love them for this, right? Notice further that you are, are to love them so much that you model this behavior. That you see it from them and you say, that's a, that's a characteristic of God to speak into the life of another. I, I, I want to nutheteo someone as well. Well, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, you need to understand someone's life. You need to understand the scriptures. You need to have the right worldview. And you need to have it so well that it causes you to understand your position in life. That you're just a clay pot. That you're just a broken vessel. That the Lord chose to pick up and graft into his children 
righteousness. Who are we to do any of this, right? We're the children of God. This is his plan. He wants this. We want to move people away from bad theology. We want to move them away from idols of their heart. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. What's the refrain in that passage? Every man, every man, every man. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man. Who's this to go to? Every man. What are we supposed to do? To put into their mind biblical thinking, accurate thinking, God-honoring thinking. You know, you can see this in Paul in, in Acts 20, 31. I'll just read this to you. He says, in, in, as he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, he says, Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each of you with tears. What a laborer for the gospel. He labored in tears to Nuthateo to speak into the mind of the people, to every man. And it says in verse 20, 20 that he did this publicly, one to many, and that he did this privately, house to house. It's important for us to understand those things. Nuthetic counseling, in a summary, I would say this. It expects adversity. It anticipates sin, rebellion, and pain. This is the bottom of your notes. It understands total depravity. So nuthetic counseling, biblical counseling, expects diversity. We understand. We expect adversity. But it also then seeks restoration. It wants to see restoration between God and man and man and man. Biblical counseling is abundantly loving. It should be then the fabric of the church. This is part of the order of Christianity to one another's and part of our, our fellowship with each other. And then again, this is for every member. Each person has the opportunity to grow in Christ-likeness through admonition, through admonishing, both receiving it and being in place to give it. The, the series, this idea of putting together this biblical counseling lecture, number one of four, which will come in the, in the following weeks, is to then begin to lay the groundwork or the foundation. The theological foundation will come next week. What is the theological foundation? What is this worldview we're talking about? Let's take that down and put it on ground level next week and start chewing it up. That's what we're going to do next week. What is the worldview? Okay? And then we'll move in the, in the following weeks into a couple of other areas to understand biblical counseling. But in this, in this process, to give you an introduction to biblical counseling, I want you to have resources. I want you to take the resources with you. So the resource on the back of your page says at the bottom, idols of the heart. I want to explain this resource to you before we leave here. So if the idea is to nuthateo people, then we need to take, we have an understanding that there's a problem or an obstacle in their heart, in their mind, that their focus has been off-center. And we need to readjust this focus and put it back on God. And, and many would say that um, you can understand idols of the heart by things that you see, and certainly you can. You know, If Pastor Eric next week shows up in a Lamborghini, you might consider he's got an idol in his heart. You, know? you need to take care of that. Um, if, if somebody in the church is smoking, you'd say, oh, smoking, that's a problem. That might be an idol of your heart. Well, they, they wear that on the outside. Drugs, alcohol, uh, pornography. See, people wear things on the outside, but there's things that they wear on the inside too. And those are the ones that take quite a while to discern and understand. 
See, the stuff on the outside, you can look at that and say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that. I'm, I'm not that. Look at me. I'm, I'm a good Christian. Well, hang on just a second. Because the back of this page is, is meant for a counselee to take a look real close. And when they come in with depression or they come in with anxiety or they come in uh, not under, thinking suicidal thoughts, they come in thinking that the, the power of God has been diminished, we need to take a look at this, at this page. We need to ask the question, is there something that you want more than God? Is there something that you desire so much that you would sin to get it? And could it be that the very thing that you want, you're going to tell me on the one hand that it's a worthy pursuit. But if I watch you in practice, that worthy pursuit gets way more time than it deserves. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe it's security. Maybe it's appreciation. Maybe it's love. Are you guaranteed the love of your spouse? Are you guaranteed that? Are you guaranteed security in your home? Are you guaranteed appreciation at work? You're not guaranteed any of these things. If I take you through a biblical counseling process and focus you on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then regardless of what circumstance unfolds in your life, I know that you can live as Paul lived. And you can say, I find my contentment in all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. That's what we're after in biblical counseling to strengthen you and have you to realize that your problems are not beyond the control and sovereignty of God. He gave them to you. And your problems most often, in fact, always, reside most clearly in your own heart. How sweet is it to biblical counseling to this, to know that if you're a Christian, saved by the blood and washed by the blood of Christ, and you have an indwelling Holy Spirit inside your heart, and you have the scriptures, and you have fellowship, and you're pointed to the idea that the sin reigning in you is your biggest problem, then look at this. Look at this. I've got the scripture, the Holy Spirit, and in me is the biggest problem. Then where does the fix come from? Does the fix come from outside? Is there anybody else to blame? Where's the opportunity? Where's the hope? Isn't it all right here? All the hope to change is right here, right? Because I've got the fellowship of the saints, I've got the word of God, I've got the indwelling Holy Spirit, and I know in myself only lies wickedness continually. And I will try to deceive myself to grab things of this world that are not going to give me satisfaction and pleasure. But if I purpose my life on Jesus Christ and him crucified, all pleasure, all joy, all peace can come to me through any circumstance. That's what biblical counseling is after. So my hope is that you enjoy these biblical counseling conversations and that you make it your own personal desire to become a biblical counselor, certified or not. Would you pray with me? Father, what a wonderful song you led us in tonight. In God alone, we find all the answers to all of life's dilemmas, to all of life's problems. In God alone, we find truth. In God alone, we find wisdom, hope, joy, peace. Father, we ask that through this conversation of biblical counseling, that we could see that our biggest troubles are inside of our own hearts and that you alone need to be the focus, the aim, the goal of our lives. Father, to you be the glory for this time and for this evening and for what this message will yield in the hearts of these saints. I pray that it would strengthen them 
for the purpose of admonition, both the receiving and the giving. And that, Lord, as a church, that biblical counseling would be the fabric, would be part of the fabric of who we are, that we love so much and care so much that we will speak, that we will labor long, that we will love in all humility, and that this would happen for our sanctification, for our good, but ultimately for your glory. We pray all these things in the beautiful, blessed name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.